Welcome to another edition of Top Lines and Tales. This week we're sponsored by Harbro, manufacturers and suppliers of quality livestock nutrition. Welcome back to part two of the history of the Aberdeen Angus in UK. And in this instalment, we'll look at the revival of the breed from its decline in the uh, mid to late 80s. And once again, I'm joined by two well-known faces amongst the breed, Marion Tilson and Nigel Hamill. Welcome back. Thank you. We mentioned some of the, the great improvers in, in the last episode. So can, let's take a, a closer look at uh, at some of these uh, three or four pioneers, as it were, that, that started to bring the breed back. And if we start with John Moores, and for those who don't know, his father started Littlewood's Pools. And uh, strangely enough, on our Shorthorn podcast, we were talking about Cecil Moores, who was also a, a Shorthorn breeder. And I'm not sure whether our younger listener or, or Americans will know what the Pools is, Nigel. Can you, can you explain what, the, what Littlewood's Pools did? Well, I guess it was a forerunner to the National Lottery, um, in that you bought a coupon and filled in your predicted scores for football matches the following week. And then the people who got the most correct answers would scoop basically the jackpot. Uh, and it was divided further down the line. So um, it it's now evolved into the national lottery, I would guess. They made a lot of money, of course, didn't they? The, the, the Moore's family from that and, and started by his uncle, I believe. And Sir John was a qualified geneticist himself, and uh, he and his brother bought Parbold Hall on the sandy lands around the Wirral area near Liverpool, I think in 1963, and with it came a, a small herd of Aberdeen Angus cattle. And being schooled at Eton and University in the USA, he'd taken over the family farm when he was in his 20s, and he had a fantastic head for figures, I believe, and when he committed himself to the Angus improvement, boy, did he really throw himself into it, both intellectually and financially. And by 1970, he'd purchased the nearby Formby farm and built up a herd of 50 Angus females using top herd sires of the time, such as Iroko of Bankhead and Eros of Witch Cross. At some point, he realized that his Angus cattle running on the sandy ground weren't producing what, what he believed the market wanted. Having spent some time in Canada, young John had seen the difference in the cattle there versus his own first hand. And a chance meeting, I think, with uh, and a long-term friendship that ensued with Tom Brewis. The two of them set off to Canada on a mission in 1973 to get some better stock. And two very forward-thinking men, uh, Marion, you'd have known Tom quite well. Uh, yes, um, obviously very close to here, but he was uh, so well-respected, um, really a master breeder. And, very good basis that he had, it was such a top-class finisher of commercial cattle and that should have been uh, was a natural uh, progression onto a breeding very commercial um, very much wanted um, bulls and uh, females uh, we always uh, or John always had huge respect for him because he was so uh, approachable and willing to advise uh, when John was always you know, finding his feet very much when he first came back to this country. Certainly was, and he was a man that advised, he gave me advice as well. In fact, uh, last time I saw him was in Australia, he was judging the Angus over there, and he gave me some advice to sober up because I was a little bit drunk. But he was <laughs> a tremendous man, tremendous man. Going back to John Moores, uh, they bought the, uh, the first bull back that was Rivercrest Eston, and both herds used him, I think, and his 
first son made 6,800 in Perth to two very traditional herds of Newhouse and Kinermany. And that was a, a massive U-turn for those guys to, to suddenly buy buy into the Canadian. It just shows that uh, that Newhouse was still, or at least Bob anyway, was still thinking forwards on, on the breed. Uh, very much so. And it's uh, something they saw attractive in that breed for their own herd. Mm-hmm. Certainly would change some of the cattle at Newhouse and Kidermany back then, bringing a bull of that size in. And uh, and Sir John had another ace up his sleeve, which is, uh, I think, his side of the business. He developed the Littlewood stores, and uh, and he decided to use those to promote Angus beef. And that was a pretty handy exercise to have and, and a nice little um, string to your arm to have there. And it certainly worked, didn't it, Nigel? Um, yes, I mean, I, I wasn't aware of that at the time. Um, what what I am aware of is that he was very influential in persuading Costco, the wholesaler, to take branded Aberdeen Angus beef very early on. And it was a while later then that the massive bull Perryville Roscoe, owned in a three-way split with uh, Willie Robertson and Willie McGregor, uh, came across. And he wasn't a pretty bull by any standards, was he? But uh, highly effective and uh, certainly paid for himself in spades, Marion. Uh, very much so, and he certainly wasn't an ugly bull, but he had the most fantastic uh, head and a lot of bone. Um, he left some super-headed females, as uh, McGregor's always said, and you could pick them out. Uh, they just stood out. Uh, he bred very well. Uh, as an addition, he was um, supposed to have left scurs. Okay, well, I can understand that, and perhaps if we do look into the the history of some of these um, Canadian cattle, it, it is widely recognised that uh, other breeds such as the Holstein, which we mentioned, I think, at the beginning of uh, of last week's uh, show, the Holsteins would have been brought into these to get the lift into them, so we can understand maybe where a little bit of that uh, dubious breeding came from. By now, the herd uh, was run under the Moss prefix, and uh, then enter a few more forward-thinking breeders such as John Elliott and Colin Davison and Bob Lane, just to name, name a few, and genetics soon spread, as did the Perth Championships, and I think the Moss had something like 19 Perth and Sterling champions and reserves. And they, Nigel, you were a student at the Moss there, were you not? So uh, tell us a bit more about the great man. Well, uh, not formally I wasn't. I'll come back to that in a minute. I, I did get to know John very well. I bought 10 heifers in calf from them when we were starting the herd. And um, I knew very little about them. And I got advice from Angus and John, who advised me to have two or three different types. Um, And sired by the bulls that you've mentioned. Uh, And those cattle did me tremendously well, especially one of those foundation cows was Kath the Moss by A. Willie Boy, who went on to breed Tegsnose Carmen who went on to genus. Um, John was just a lovely man, very helpful, as was his farm manager, Angus Bailey, and really got me on the way. Now, coming back to my student bit, um, as I knew nothing about the cattle, and I said to John, I know not very much at all, but I'm in it for the long term, and I want to learn as much as I can as quickly as possible. So, uh, Charlie Fairbairn was his stockman then and a great showman. And Charlie said, well, why don't you come over to the moss and work with me when I'm getting cattle ready for sales or shows? 
and uh, work with me and learn how to clip them and wash them and bring them out, uh, which is exactly what I did. And I spent quite a lot of days there working with Charlie, basically working as his, his dog's body, <laughs> but, but clipping, washing, blow drying, uh, every, everything that I learned about the cattle initially was from there. Um, though I did get a bit of help from Dave Smith in later years. Okay. But yes, Charlie Fairburn, you're right. I probably missed him out there again. Another great stockman, as you said, a, a great showman as well. And that's the story of, of pretty much the Moss that carried on going. Sir John Moore later died. And of course, his son Kevin carried on. And I think the Moss is still uh, still producing Angus to this day. Uh, the name Willie McLaren um, will and should be recognised as one breeder who stuck in there, um, keeping the lights on through those doldrum years, with Angus roots going back through his grandfather back to the 1920s, I think. Willie bought his first own Angus in 1943 and then sold a bull for £4,000 in 1952. But Netherton would really kickstart the victorious herd that they that they ended up with by buying the entire Barnaldby herd from the Osmonds in uh, in 1971 and he'd continue showing and promoting the breed for the next 50 years at such a passion that's legendary really isn't it he was he was Mr Lone Angus for a number of years wasn't he Marion uh, he actually deserves a book and podcast on his own he's absolute uh, legend in the breed um he was one, I suppose, uh, as you say, lone Angus because he pursued the performance recording. Um, and you have to give him credit that his cattle were all weighed and uh, performance recorded um, long before uh, the whole system had got up and running. And um, I think, not sure if he'd be involved in, in the first, the bull testing at Crapeston. He was, yeah. Uh, Remember, the Angus Society uh, ran it, and it was then moved, I think, briefly to Ingleston and then to Barby in Yorkshire, uh, but always at the back of any of these performance uh, things, you always thought of um, Willie McLaren. Yeah, yeah. And again, on a visit to Canada while he was president in 1973, I think his first term of presidency, he sought out the best and he came home with two bulls from Canada, which Walnut of Edgley Acres would be the one that would be the breeder. But it was uh, Ireland that perhaps gave Willie his lucky break and on a jaunt round the country, his cousin Sandy Dawson had spotted a commercial bull called Robbie of Milltown and tried to buy him. And as he wasn't for sale, they sought out a son, Patrick of Briefy, who was working on a commercial herd down down the south, and they went and bought him at five years old, initially uh, in partnership with Tom Brewis. I, I think that Jimmy Minter was, was along on that trip with Sandy as well. And Patrick would probably go on to be possibly the most successful bull in the next two decades. And his crop of calves in 1983 grossed 125,000 guineas. Uh, and a few cows from the same herd um, went on to be famous too. And when I was doing some research, I ended up uh, having a word with the breeder of Patrick uh, and uh, a, a chap called Philip Munnery from Sligo in, in right on the west of Ireland. And I asked him outright why uh, such a small herd uh, had, had done so well under the briefy prefix and been so sought after. And I quote, he said, we kept some size in our cattle when other folks wanted them as big as sheep. 
and that always makes me smile. I think that's uh, something to be noted there. But uh, that's the story of Patrick Abrifi, and he was uh, significant, wasn't he? Wasn't he, Marion? Very much so. Um, in the back of uh, so many of the really good um, offspring and pedigrees of Willie at that time. Mm-hmm. And the other significant find for Willie would be a Canadian cow, which was on the demonstration on the Canadian trade stand at the Royal Show, and she was called Seabar Favourite. And Willie told me himself he had to work very hard to buy the cow, and I think didn't she get eventually bought her at auction. I think he couldn't buy her off the stand, but uh, her offspring would go on and underpin the, the Netherton herd for many, many years, and females from the F family breaking numerous records. Um, and again, still sought after, I think, that, that female line. Very much so. Uh, Fleurs and uh, any of the uh, Fs are still in evidence in uh, pedigrees. Mm-hmm. The Netherton herd would later be combined with uh, Highland Wagyu and is now run by young William using a lot of uh, North American genetics but uh, still on the go and, and so is Willie still on the go and uh, we wish him well and I do hope to speak to him uh, on this podcast very soon. Another name that we mentioned was Neil Massey and again in the, the headlines this month uh, Neil's been profiled in podcast number 38 uh, on Top Lines and Tales, but to fu- suffice to say that he was another one who saw the strength in the Canadian cattle, bringing over bulls like Skillimano Revlon, a bull that he admits made great strides in cleaning up the front ends of, of his cattle and many other cattle as well, as well as injecting a bit of frame. Other bulls he, he had, such as Wilmo, Powerhouse and Southam Winchester, took the Bleelac herd to the very pinnacle of the breed and uh, pretty much stayed there ever since. And... Uh, we should just mention that uh, Bleelac have just had their final dispersal uh, recently in a 150 head of cattle grossing over a million pounds. So uh, the end of an era, Nigel, but uh, some innings that Bleelac had. Indeed, and uh, carried on very ably by son Graham and Graham's daughter. After, after Neil gradually went into um, semi-retirement, a bit like somebody else I know sitting here, um, but... Uh, yeah, they, they've had a fantastic record, very influential, um, from some very hard land up in North Aberdeenshire. And and not only, of course, in uh, Angus, but he was also involved in Charolais and Shortons and pretty good at anything that uh, the family touched. But but there were some tough years, weren't there, Marion? And uh, can we speak about uh, Weatherly? We mentioned briefly last week, um, a highly successful herd and... You'd have dropped numbers, heard numbers right down in the 80s but uh, and kept the commercial aspect of the breed, but then you used bulls like T.C. Stockman and uh, and brought in a New Zealand connection. You went on to record um, bulls at 24 and 25,000. Can you tell me a little bit more about the about the Weatherly herd in its more modern form? Um, yeah, there's a sort of always um, these connections back um, that in the days of the belt buckle cattle, uh, we were too commercial, uh, too big, and uh, I think th- as market dictated, we ended up buying Newhouse Excellence, who, funnily enough, had been used at Belechen and with Neil Massey. And then we used other new house bulls after that. Uh, we had one season of Newhouse Dewey Eric, who came here on his way to New Zealand, and at the same time we bought Newhouse Edwin Elko, who bred very well here. Um, and then, um, again, it's just keeping going. We had sort of odd uh, successes um, leading up, I suppose. Uh, 
I think at the time in the 70s, uh, we were registering something like six cows, but all our, uh, we kept the numbers, but anything that did not breed well to Angus, we tried with um, Romagnola, of all things, Charlie, Ménonjou, Meuse Rhinisel, uh, and Shorthorn, and the Ménonjou came out uh, the best. And when the steers of the Ménonjou uh, were not weighing heavier than our own Angus steers, we said, well, why not go to all Angus? Because the scheme was there to um, give the premium for them. So that sort of, in a way, that uh, cutting down was probably a, a good way of selection of the best only. Um, and we also, from um, Eastfield, bought Elijah, who was by that bull that I think you've mentioned before, Gentle Junior of Sturton, who was in a commercial herd. Um, he bred well for us, and we also brought in um, Carl of Tuaroa, uh, from New Zealand. Um, John's father bought him at auction out there. And uh, the subsequent year, I bought um, privately from New Zealand. Uh, but in a way, we were maybe uh, too late for them because they were so um, fleshy, correct, uh, structural, sound, and excellent feet and jaws, as you would always expect from New Zealand. Um, both bulls, you know, they left the foundation of correct, good things, uh, good cattle. And am I right in thinking John's family are from New Zealand? Uh, yes, he's a uh, New Zealander and uh, they bred um, Angus cattle out there. So it was a very uh, useful link <laughs> through that. And we brought, uh, John started his own pre prefix with the port of four heifers uh, from his father's herd. Um, then again, it all ties up with other pro podcasts that we bought. Uh, Alan and Powerman from Roburn uh, as a mature bull and used the bulls of that era Winton Lad, uh, Wilmer Powerhouse, Wilbar Supreme, and probably one of the most successful bulls we ever um, bought was Lord Horatio of Lelac. Uh, in partnership with Haymount and Toft. And um, I would, you know, use him again today because he left such good females and such sound and good-footed cattle. And then we also bought from Canada um, Dream Street and a Cudlow Bull. And uh, then went on that uh, John bought embryos uh, from Bob Lane, from the Knights Blackbird 9Y and the Coldstream Tidy B. And I gather Neil uh, was very annoyed uh, with Bob for doing that. Why give him to the opposition? Um, <laughs> I'm sure you weren't the opposition, Marion, but you're probably breeding from a slightly different angle than he was. <laughs> um, no, but he sort of thought that we might be. And he, they bred very well. And again, next one was Rossiter. Aino Rossiter, Eric, who has been an outstanding bull and still doing well uh, for AI for people that we shared with Idvis. And your 24,000 one was um, an embryo from Coldstream. 
and uh, he was junior overall champion, sold to the Moss for 24. Uh, that same year, we had went to Kansas, was intermediate champion, and uh, made 10,000 to Glassell. And we subsequently bought him back because the uh, breeding and the genetics was doing so well. And, and um, when I visited uh, Wedley, I believe you had upwards of 300 cows, would it be? Certainly, you run a, you run a lot, of, lot of females to... to um... On a reasonable uh, commercial basis, but a lot of a lot of cattle. And always uh, all pedigree. Um, I don't think we would wouldn't be three hundred. Uh, we're about two forty now. I would like to just come in there with a brief claim to fame, and I was judging a show down at Morton in the Marsh, and a young bull there was in as a yearling, and he was called Eno Rossiter. And uh, he was up in the championship against a Glimpton bull that had been winning every show in the country for the last two years. And I put Rossiter as champion, much to a lot of people's disgust. <laughs> and I said, I think this bull will end up in Perth making a lot of money. Yeah. And of course, the Aina Herd is one that we should mention, uh, um, of course, from Alex McLaren down there in the Midlands. Well, well that's thanks for the, the history of the brief history of the. Weddily uh, heard there, Marion, and certainly you are still near there at the top, and and would have a string of Perth championships uh, under your under your own name. And uh, not to be left out, of course, your daughter Wanda started her own herd after you, your son was sadly killed, and uh, uh, I think you started with an Eastfield cow, and uh, she went on to breed a Perth champion. I think the last champion that was in Perth before it moved to Stirling sold for nine thousand guineas. Um. Amongst the, we call the improvers there, we, uh, Nightingale Herd has also been profiled on our podcast number 40, and uh, Willie Robertson being another breeder who founded his main female lines on Canadian genetics, and uh, amongst his claim to fame, uh, Willie, Willie selling a lot of bulls from home, it was his breeding that was behind the bull, Nether Island Peter Pershaw, who would be in just about every pedigree in the UK just now, Nigel. Um, yes, and uh, possibly too widely used, if anything, um, which is always dangerous, but also left some very good cattle. It's hard to get away from him now, I suppose, isn't it? And uh, um, I suppose we shouldn't leave out the Queen Mother from this breed revival, always been involved in Angus and had an interest in Angus. And uh, when the breed revival came back, uh, the Castle of May took on a few imported bulls, under whose guidance I'm not sure, but to break with tradition. And... Uh, and even some embryos were implanted. And uh, Castle of May Evening Star sold for five and a half thousand in 1990 by 4S Ponderosa. And Nigel, I think you had something to do with these embryos, didn't you? Well, not those particular ones, but I did with some others. And in fact, one of my first purchases as a female was Castle of May Elena by Scotch Cap. Uh, and I was attracted to that because. Uh, some of the moss cattle I got were by Scotch Cap and ver were very successful. Um, the the little story that's quite fascinating about the embryos is that I went to New Zealand the first time in 2000 for the millennium and visited several herds, not with the intent of buying anything, but I went to Kaharau and was so impressed at the quality of the cattle, the correctness of the cattle, and the weights they were achieving purely off grass, that uh, I had a serious discussion with, with Colin Williamson, the owner. 
And um, there was one particular cow I favoured because it had the best bull calf I'd seen in four years on it. It was by uh, a, basically a semi-native, in, in quotes, bull, uh, Waimata Zulu. And this this particular cow was a tremendous animal. And I said, I would like to buy some embryos out of that, Colin. And they said, no, it's not getting flushed. You've uh, you've followed Willie McLaren and um, a couple of other breeders from the north of Scotland who also were interested in that cow and have refused. And I said, well, that's very sad because it's a wonderful cow. Anyway, I stayed with Colin a couple of days. We had some whiskey two nights later. And uh, in the middle of the bottle of whiskey, he said, if you were to flush that cow, what would you flush it to? And I said, Zulu. And he said, well, you can't do that because Zulu doesn't qualify for export to the UK. Uh, I rang Sheila Eggleston, who said it doesn't matter, the embryos will. So I said, right, um, it does qualify, and I would like the embryos. The following morning, he said, if you were to have some embryos available from that cow, the Queen Mother requires four for a hundred birthday and I've been asked by the association to send them if she took her four out first would you take the remainder and I said absolutely <laughs> so, so off I went back to England heard nothing more for a little while um, except that apparently she'd flushed well I had 10 heifers programmed to receive these embryos when I was advised the plane was going to be releasing them from Manchester I got a call from Sheila Eggleston to say, you um, have a little problem. The embryos have been held up because of poor paperwork at Manchester Airport. The paperwork isn't to the satisfaction of the officials. And I said, I'm in a panic then because I've got Will Christie here from uh, the, sorry, the embryo transplant company. What do I do? She said, don't panic. I'll call you in an hour. She called in an hour and she said, by some divine intervention, both yours and the mother's embryos have now been released. It's not what you know, it's who you know, Nigel. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Anyway, we were very successful um, and went on to help me a great deal in moving the herd forward with the New Zealand genetics. Excellent. Excellent, great story. And uh, if I can go back to the 80s for a minute, there's a few people we need to, to mention that decade did carry on producing a string of unforgettable show cows, didn't it? And the likes of George Cormack at Ashley and Ian Anderson at Rushmore and uh, Smithy now at Shield Mains. And between them, they'd be jockeying for championship positions, wouldn't they? And, and bringing out some fantastic cows, which were taking the eye of a lot of other breeders. Got to be a good... Uh, a good um, advert for the breed, and quite a few of those, I think, were Ed Wieners, if I remember right. And, and uh, But George Cormack needs some credit, doesn't he? We mentioned him earlier on for the work that he did promoting the breed as a, as a number one beef producer. And Nigel, you were president in 2006, and you spent your, your whole tour, I think, touring Europe promoting the breed. Um, tell us a little bit more about what George Cormack went about uh, uh, in, in his promotional days. Well, George Cormack was instrumental in um, getting the certified beef scheme off the ground, which was very helpful in basically giving branded Aberdeen Angus beef an outlet. And in the early days, 
Waitrose took on the, the branded Aberdeen Angus beef, though they wouldn't take it from the producer group on the certified scheme, so they wouldn't pay a premium. But um, George w was very instrumental in getting it in there. And certainly, in my view, it's down to Waitrose that started to create a demand again for Angus beef. You were asking about me touring Europe, if I can, yep. very briefly. Sure. Um, when I was vice president to the lady sitting on the other end of the, the line, <laughs> Marion, um, I said that my objective as president will be to open up exports once again f from Britain to Europe after we were allowed to following BSE clearance. And um, so I, I, that was my stated objective. And I met several people um, at shows. It was at this time that I was introduced to Paolo Costa at a, a show in Germany. Um, and he came across to England uh, to discuss um, improving the cattle in the Azores by using Angus uh, as a sire to cross with the dairy cattle and also to import some females. Rob Wills from UK Sires brought Paolo to my place and then took him on around the UK visiting several herds and Paolo put a paper together and obtained funding from uh, the Farmers Federation in the Azores to import some cattle. Unfortunately once this was arranged we had a foot-and-mouth outbreak in the UK, um, so British cattle couldn't go, and Paolo was going to go to Denmark and the Czech Republic to source the cattle. Um, we persuaded him that he actually liked UK genetics and that the Irish cattle were very similar genetically, and there was no restriction on export from Ireland. So after a visit to Ireland, the first consignment went from there uh, into the Azores. Which was very satisfying, including one of my bulls, Tegsno's Kiwi Transformer. And um, we went to Bucharest, we went to um, the German show, to Eurotier, we went to Poland, to Poznan, um, we went into Portugal. So we were going around Ron Nakati, myself, Colin Davidson, um, doing a kind of three-way split, presentations to the farmers there, which many of whom had never heard of Aberdeen Angus. Uh, it, it was a very interesting experience. And in retrospect, I'm delighted to say it's something I can still be proud of absolutely and proud of you should be and i know there's certainly a, a big um uh, group of breeders certainly in romania that uh, I, I run the the, the aberdeen angus uh, facebook page and there's certainly a huge following of them there in in that uh, eastern side of europe and uh, yeah credit to you for, for credit to you all of you around about that time but certainly to yourself nigel for for taking that upon yourself if we just drop back into the 90s a minute to there there was some Massive bulls being touted about on that show circuit, weren't there? Including We Were Creek North Star, um, of course, TLA Northern Samurai, Early Sunset Coalition, a massive creature, and, and uh, the highly successful uh, Mushroom Friar Fergus. And uh, 
the latter one being in the hands of Smithy, of course, and they'd all leave their mark, wouldn't they? Particularly Samurai, who said Gal Country Predator for Davy Walker at 12,000, but some huge balls. We'd gone gone along a little bit too far then, had we? No, I think they were uh, needed at the time, um, and it would also include uh, the balls that uh, George Cormack brought in Windover, Justifier, Sunset Acres, Bang, and, um, and Hearts, Wild Turkey. And if you look how successful Sunset Acres Bang was in uh, Ireland and Wendover Justifier uh, was a very acceptable bull at uh, that time and uh, bred well. And I seem to remember Bull Kinnabeer Mr. Steakhouse being in George's hands as well. He was a decent beast at the time. Just looking at a few breeders, uh, Tom Rennie and his son Alan at Noston Muir would be on the show circuit with females with Jimmy McMillan bringing out the cattle. Nice to see Jimmy back in the breed again after a lot of years. And uh, they had a good reign for the while, I suppose, late 90s, early 2000s at the show circuit. I probably saw as much of Tom um, and Jimmy as Marion would do in those days because they spent a lot of time showing in England. Uh-huh. Um, and the Yorkshire show was one of their great favourites as it was of mine. And um, I remember Jimmy and I used to take turns being up at half past four or five o'clock in the morning to muck out each other's cattle on alternate days so we could uh, just have a few little gins the night before. Some character, Jimmy. It's nice to, nice to get him a mention on the, on the podcast here. And talking of characters, you mentioned earlier on Bob Lane. Bob was an enthusiast of the breed, wasn't he? And his uh, his penguin herd. It was a chance purchase of a couple of Canadian embryos that uh, that put him in the record books with uh, penguin Mr. Elevate selling to Michael O'Leary, of course, of Ryanair and, and for 32000 And then his stablemate making 28000 to... Carl Hurley, and that's another herd I suppose we should mention. Alistair Cormack, of course, son of, jo- of George, was uh, was the making of that herd. So uh, I say Bob was some man. I think he was a fr- he's quite a big pally with uh, with Neil Massey, wasn't he? Um, he's his buddy, according to the uh, re- recent uh, sale catalogue. Um, they were in uh, um, Canada regularly. Uh, and Bob had quite a lot of uh, Canadian bulls back. Uh, Nigel, you might remember Glen Isla uh, Masterpiece. I like, do. A very I... big bull. Um, and, of course, it, the uh, Ainu Rossiter bull we had uh, went back to a, a penguin cow. Okay. And I mentioned briefly Alistair Cormack at, at uh, Carl Hurley, and again, uh, industrialist money that underpinned the, the Carl Hurley herd, but uh, Alistair needs to mention uh, just dedicated to the to that herd and to that breed and, and took them right to the top of the show circuit and, and some bred some great females. Uh, entirely both. A uh, huge credit to Alistair and Doreen uh, for their work at Carl Hurley. Um, absolute perfection in bringing out um, bulls or females. And uh, yes, they were very successful at the Raw in the Highland. They were two of the nicest people floating about at the time. Certainly, I totally agree with that one. Uh, Alastair and Graham Fraser from Idviz had uh, been in the breed since the early 60s and been in the fat stock side a little bit, but uh, their time came later, really, after the purchase, perhaps, of the 28,000 Jeremy Eric of Bridgefoot and then Rawburn Rommel, both of who underpinned some fine females in the herd and uh, later sales often... often Topping 20,000 for, for bulls from Idviz and Shadwell Black Broughton 
also put a shine on their stock as well as winning the Highland Show and everything else before him in 2015. A great-looking bull he was. Uh, yes, I judged him at the Highland. That's why um, I was very pleased to see uh, Offspring doing well because um, he was uh, interbreed there too. It was a credit to everybody that day, certainly a credit to yeah the, the interbreed. He looked like he was winning it by 100 miles by in, in, my, in my eyes. So. And mine. <laughs> Uh, Nigel, your tegs nose herd would be more prominent, as you said, in the 2000 and bulls. You mentioned briefly uh, the 10,000 guinea tegs nose car boy sold to Cardona. And of course, Cardona is another herd we should give a mention to from the, the Galloway family, who were uh, butchers uh, and uh, of Scott Beef, obviously. And uh, Cardona, again, still still going today. It would be nice to put a bull into that, uh, into that home, Nigel. It was, and it was actually... The the first successful one was Tegsno's Carmen, which was the son of Catherine the Moss. Um, and I sold him to Genus. Uh, and he went on to become the most widely used sire by AI in Europe, okay. uh, which, which was nice. And then Carboy was out of Kathleen of Tegsno's, which was a daughter of Catherine the Moss. And that whole family were tremendously successful both on the show circuit and financially for us. Good. The New Zealand influence um, was where I was going because uh, my my view was that we needed to have grass-fed and grass-finished cattle, not grain-fed cattle. And New Zealand had already established the ability to um, produce those cattle. Uh, so eventually more than half my herd was derived from New Zealand embryos from Kaharau and um, some of them are starting up other herds um, David Soul's herd was based on quite a lot of those New Zealand cattle um, and Melview they've got some of them from that influence down there so yeah the, New Zealand are a great deal of admiration for what they did and are still doing you mentioned uh, David Soul there, of course, was the the rugby player and um, cause another rugby player in the Aberdeen Angus breed um, since then would be uh, Rory Best and uh, seems to attract a few of these rugby players around there. Um, I mentioned uh, O'Leary earlier, but possibly the most influential herd in Ireland would probably be the, the McEnroe uh, brothers, wouldn't it? Liss and Liss Duff, the, the two boys, able lads, both of them, and as was the father... Bartle, um, and and again, prominent in the breed uh, in the breed today, uh, and good marketeers. Indeed, and I spent a lot of time with Leo McEnroe out in the Azores in the early days, um, where he was brought in to demonstrate how to bring out cattle for show, and the two of us and he worked together there for two shows, uh, and he's also been very successful and develop an export market principally in Portugal with, with less genetics. When I was there, I think he was sending two or three Arctic loads out to Russia. So, yeah, the man, the, the, the boys do their marketing very well, should I say. The other um, main one, I suppose, in Ireland in recent times, we can't forget, is Albert de Kogan from Cork and another great character and past president. And Albert's probably won more prizes for Angus than just about everybody else put together. Uh, he likes a show, doesn't he, Marion? But we can't underestimate. Can't underestimate the Irish when it comes to Angus, can we? Uh, no, they always produce their goods, um, and what they 
seem to hide somewhere and then appear somewhere the Banlahe uh, herd. Um, the odd bulls came over here and, and were very successful. Um, I suppose, yes, as you say, uh, McEnroe's and probably now the matches. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're, well, they've got Charlie and Angus. Yes, of course, the Matchett family have been very strong in, in the north there and uh, won a lot of prizes and produced some great stock. And I suppose another couple of herds we should mention there, John Tate at the West Ellen herd and uh, Eustace Burke, of course, at the uh, Clinton herd. Uh, moving on through the decade, the cattle were improving all the time in confirmation as, and growth rates and until uh, they could once again start competing with the Charolais and uh, Aberdeen breeders such as Hamish Slater and uh, Neil Watty at Tonley and um, past fat stock showman John Lascelles, they'd start presenting bulls at Perth or at Stirling maybe for that were over a thousand kilos and uh, not everybody held with those types either did they was a was the job getting a bit too excessive by then Nigel um in my view to some extent it was but it wasn't it wasn't just them bulls had been making those weights for quite some time um but what what was happening was that they were getting very much overfed for, for the person and were then very difficult to slim down in time for the breeding season We've certainly seen that in other breeds where it is the, these animals can get too fat. And we've certainly seen it in history as well where the animals can get too fat. And then, of course, they don't go on and breed straight away. But I suppose those great big bulls opened the door for a, another breeder going the other direction, which was uh, uh, who not only stuck to his guns but went on to corner the market in the traditional genetics. And that was Geordie Souter at uh, Dunluise. And uh, in some ways, it's probably best that, that, that Geordie did that. There's certainly been a market overseas for those traditional old type genes, haven't they? And uh, he's got them all in a, a flask. Somewhere just, uh, it's nice to know they're still around. Um, yes, uh, I admire that Geordie's created a fantastic market for what he's done, particularly in North America and the Montanas. Um, but we, we mustn't forget Mary Hamnett, who's local to me, who shares quite a lot of genetics with Geordie and breed similar type of cattle and uh, she she's quite successful also um, so yeah there is a market within the angus breed for many different types and that's probably why it's so successful worldwide i yeah, quite agree uh, with that and um the uh, market that uh, geordie has developed in america is just quite incredible uh, i think one of his bulls would be the uh, Dan Louis Gypsy Earl, well, the bull with the, one of the highest number of um, AI. Yeah. Um, and it's very popular there because they, they were downsizing so much. And George, again, a great marketeer, has done his marketing and, and, and uh, just recently won a, an, an MBE, I believe. And congratulations, uh, Jordy. Yeah. Um, shortly then, when the money was starting to flow in, and renowned Charolais breeders started to come in, like. Uh, Alastair Houston at Gretna House and and, um, and Ian and John Campbell from Thruntum would get into the breed, if only to satisfy their regular customers who were demanding Aberdeen Angus bulls again, as, as well as the Charolais. And the commercial driver for this, I suppose, would come from the certified beef scheme that we talked about earlier on. And uh, um, Alastair Houston, sadly, no longer with us, but a, a very, in fact, two very able stables, those two. I think, it, yeah, everything Alastair um, touched turned to gold. He was quite incredible and a real um, flair uh, insight into 
what to breed, how to breed it, and he was such a remarkable person with uh, people. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very sorry about uh, that, but I think, uh, again, it's the uh, commercial um, beef market that's uh, driving a lot of these uh, Charlie breeders or other breeders uh, to run them alongside their Charlie. Can can you give me a little bit, not so much me, but maybe our overseas listeners, a little bit more background on the certified Angus beef scheme as it runs in the UK? Because it's quite a bit different to the one in the US, isn't it? It is, and I was very much involved with that um, in my time on council. Uh, and I was chairman of the certified beef scheme for quite some time. Um, basically, in the UK, it's based on a sire, which is genetically registered as an Aberdeen Angus sire. Uh, so an Aberdeen Angus sire crossed with anything can be included in the certified beef scheme. In the US, it doesn't have to have any Angus genetics in it whatsoever if the meat is of an Angus type. So that, that's a very big difference. Um, the certified beef scheme produced quite a lot of revenue for the society. And one of the best things we, we did, um, which was Ron McCarty's initiative again, was to get in, in bed with uh, Burger King. And they, they came in and asked for certified Angus beef to make an Angus burger, uh, which they would license from the, the society. And there's a license in every Burger King restaurant, which they pay for annually. And that put an awful lot of weight behind the scheme. Waitrose, you have to give credit for sticking with it all of these years and backing the scheme. Uh, also on their, their show stands, the Highland Show and the Royal Show, they were doing demonstrations with Aberdeen Angus beef. When the breed was in trouble, Jim Stobo was brought in as president. Uh, and he asked me to do a bit of a paper on uh, how we could go about marketing it better and creating a demand for the beef. And in my past marketing life in the pharmaceutical industry, would use the principle of bringing experts on board as a steering committee to advise us on where we should be going and what the market would be doing. Um, And Jim introduced us to a chap called Bill Marlow, who was a PR man from London. And um, we had a a long chat with Bill. Bill was already on board as the PR man for Marks & Spencers at the time and had contacts in every little bit of the beef industry. Um, And I realized that we could gain access to those contacts, but it would cost us fees, which was not used to happening within the younger society. So we put together a proposal, um, invested quite a lot of money for two years with Bill Marlowe, who brought everybody on board, and uh, we formed the Aberdeen Angus Beef Club, which was fairly short-lived, about six years. But at that time, we had many wholesalers and retailers on board for regular meetings, updating us on the way the market was moving and advising their customers that they should be using Aberdeen Angus Beef and getting a premium for it. And my 
recollection of when it was working was at the Scott Beef Live and Dead show and award ceremony that they do every Christmas. And I went along and um, the then um, marketing manager for foodstuffs at Marks and Spencer's stood up and said, we are having tremendous success with the Aberdeen Angus beef brand, but we can't get enough supply. So if any of you don't have an Angus bull on the farm, please buy one at Perth in February. Self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it, there to, to drive the market uh, upwards? And, of course, now some of that um, certified beef will be coming out of the dairy industry, and we've heard that from one of our previous guests who's in the semen business saying there's a driver now for Angus semen going into the dairy industry uh, and, and, and the beef coming from there. And uh, how, do, how do we think that the, the beef from the dairy industry versus the beef from the suckler cow industry, if it were, would stand up to each other? Uh, Marion, is it something we can see? We're looking forward to seeing in the future is more more beef coming out of the the dairy cow. Um, yeah, I don't see really any problem uh, with it because I think it should be the quality of the beef and trying to get a consistent product and probably you get more consistency uh, from a regular dairy supply, um, even if it's Holstein with which has its own marbling um, compared to some out of beef. Um, there is a, a problem with inconsistent. Uh, eating experience, as they say, and it would be nice to try and uh, even that out. And if it means some is from the dairy, then fine. Certainly. And the dairy industry claimed, of course, they have a lot of figures to back up uh, what what they do, and they're quite happy to carry on with the figures into the beef side of it. Yeah, and I I would say that Waitrose have been encouraging this for many years. At one time, they were buying Angus bulls from breeders such as myself, and loaning them to dairy farms which were in their supply chain and and getting buying back all the calves and that's happening now in Romania with Bernard Deli's operation too so that's where a lot of the beef is coming from and um, companies like Waitrose have always run taste test panels and they, they do regular checks and report back and uh, that hasn't made them shy away from Angus in any way. It's made them go the other way, hasn't it? Indeed. Indeed. And and you mentioned Bernard, Bernard Dell there for a second, runs a very big outfit, the Angus Group. In Germany. They're running thousands of cows, I think, and there's certainly, um, there are a lot of big commercial pure Angus herds now that have sprung up around the UK. Would uh, sort of swell, in, in, including uh, your own Marion and the likes of, of Angus Stovold from, from Rosemead in Surrey there. You're running 200 plus cows there, so... Uh, not all those will go for for um, for bulls, obviously, or, or for females. So there must be some pure Angus beef coming onto the market as well. And would there be a market from that maybe in, into the into the high end uh, restaurant chains? Pure Angus beef. Um, I sometimes see there might be conflict with uh, Wagyu, which tries to uh, claim as the topmost uh, quality um, different beef. Um, if don't think there would be enough um, pure Angus uh, to have, have a regular market. It would have to be seen as a niche market, and it would be quite difficult to promote uh, as such. Um, I have to say we hardly finish any now. Um, most of bulls and um, females go for um, breeding. Okay. In New Zealand, they have the Angus Pure Scheme, which is... a, a 
a very large part now of, of their beef production. But of course, there are many more Aberdeen Angus pure cattle in New Zealand per head of cattle than there are here. There's more, more Angus and, in New Zealand than there are people, I think, Nigel. Um, well, there's possibly a few more sheep as well, but we'll not go into that. Um, yeah, I agree with Marion that in the UK, you'll never get enough supply of pure Angus bred from an Angus bull and an Angus female in the UK to satisfy the market. And Wagyu cross Angus is becoming quite popular, like from Highland Wagyu. Um, personally, I prefer the Angus myself, but it's a matter of taste and they're very successful. You told me you were a Galloway man. Um, well, <laughs> um, I can tell you a few tales about well-known breeders who would... Uh, Except that Galloway meat is also exceptionally good. I'm doing a Galloway <laughs> podcast in a few weeks at a time, Nigel. I'll give you a call. <laughs> and <laughs> but that obviously tells us then that the, the the demand for Angus is still rising. If you're saying supply is still is still short, or the supply chain is still calling out for for more, and obviously using the semen into the dairy industry. And by 2010, Angus registrations were on, on up, and they were back at the top in the UK, and uh, and I think they still are, aren't they? Yes, Andy, um, we're actually gradually turning the country black. <laughs> and we mentioned Angus Stovold earlier on, another past president of the society. And, and Nigel, I think you've got some information on how the Rosemead herd uh, got started. His grandfather started the herd in the 30s. And um, the family preferred South Devons at the time. So his grandfather nipped off to Scotland and he was running another farm away from Rosemead and bought a load of Aberdeen Angus cattle and brought them back and hid them for two years. He didn't start, uh, when he was satisfied that the herd was good enough, he started showing and winning shows um, and then was gradually accepted by the rest of the family. Excellent. He didn't paint them red by any chance, did he? What <laughs> <laughs> a great story and a great man Angus has, has a great dynasty of a family they have been and certainly um, Percy at his days at, uh, at Smithville of course they, they flew the banner for a, a, lot of, a lot of breeds and a lot of good cattle and going back to the olden days the breed record from 1963 I believe still stands to this day am I right 60,000 guineas for, for an Angus and uh, um, they're probably the only breed that would have surpassed that maybe would be the limousines, would I be right, certainly in the beef breeds? Uh, pro probably Neil Massey c came as close uh, to any with the cow and calf at 62,000 on Monday. I suppose he did, and congratulations to him. I suppose that could be seen by some as two entities rather than one, but certainly in the bull yeah. in the bull trade we still have this uh, 60. It's still there to be, be shot at, Marion, there for you next year in, in, in Sterling. Um, we don't take any to Sterling. Uh, we sell them all privately at home, uh, just produce our own uh, catalogue every year, which we have for 10 years. Uh, we used to take um, maybe one or two each year. Uh, I think 2019 might have been the last. We had 17,000 to Glimpton. Um, but it's infinitely easier and very much more predictable to have people come here um, entertain them 
and uh, sell on farm. Certainly, you're not on your own on that one. Of course, we, we've had a, a great podcast with Rawburn earlier on, and that's the, the the route that they went down. And likewise, Willie Robertson and, and a few more. He's right. If you can sell them at home at half the age and, and without having to put the put the finishing touches to them, that brings a lot more profit margin yep. into it. And, and I'm sure we've missed a lot of, of bulls and great characters in these two episodes, but I hope you've enjoyed the journey through the history of the, of the great breed that is the Aberdeen Angus. And uh, thank you uh, dearly to our two uh, very knowledgeable guests on, on this week's podcast, uh, Nigel and Marion. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. I'll say thank you again, Andy. Okay. Well hosted. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast, which was kindly sponsored by Harbro, suppliers of quality commercial and pedigree feeds and expert nutritional advice. Visit their website or find them on Facebook for more information. And while on the subject of Facebook, why don't you visit the Top Lines and Tales Facebook page, where you'll find photographs and more information to back up this episode.